0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. My name is Joan Kwai. I'm a PhD candidate studying media and communication at Cal University in Sweden. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Maria Wyemas, she is an assistant professor in cybersecurity and politics at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and currently a core fellow at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies, where she researches internet freedom and the human rights implications of internet policy and platform governance, in particular in authoritarian states. She is also one of the editors of the Palgrave Handbook of Digital Russia Studies, published Open Access last year. The book presents a multidisciplinary and multifaceted perspective on how the digital is simultaneously changing Russia and the research methods scholars use to study Russia. We'll be talking about this book and some other interesting research Malia has been doing. Malia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So to begin with, can you tell us a little bit of your background? What have you been doing and what has led you to your current research interests? Well,
1: I've always have a fascination with how uh, collectives, so groups of people come to believe certain things. Uh, so especially, of course, where uh, I've been specializing mostly in Russia. Uh, so that is also how does the state control the information space? How does it control what people think, uh, whether they approve of the government or not? Uh, so this has been uh, the core of my fascination for quite some time. I started off in quite different topics, so more in the traditional media sphere, uh, so uh, Russian television, Russian cinema. So how all of these forms of mass communication are used to promote certain understandings of politics. So how can you, for example, use uh, historical references to make the claim that Russia has always uh, has always been this great state and that it needs a strong leader and so on. Uh, so that was my initial uh, initial topics that I focused on, so more this uses of history, memory politics, uh, and how that intersects with uh, cultural policy, uh, with um, policies affecting press freedom. That was more for my, uh, my PhD. Uh, but since then, I've moved uh, quite steadily towards the digital, uh, since also Russian restrictive measures have also moved to the digital. So initially, they targeted mostly uh, television, television, um, newspapers, like all of these mass communication channels, and the internet was more or less unregulated or very limitly. But that has changed massively over time. And I've kind of moved along with, uh, with the Russian government and what they have been focusing on. So trying to study what do they do? Uh, what are the different tactics that they use? How successful are they but also the other way around. So how successful are Russian citizens, Russian opposition leaders, Russian activists, and actually still trying to shape that information space, coming up with new tactics and so on. So it's really about this competition and shaping information flows, uh, shaping uh, what you can say, what you cannot say. And as a result, of course, then uh, the end point tends to be uh, to try and influence how the, the audience at large thinks.
0: Uh, you've already painted a nice background to introduce the book Digital Russia Studies. Uh, As you are one of the editors, can you tell us a little bit how did the book come into being?
1: It actually emerged from a, a collaboration that I had with one of the other co-editors, uh, Darek Gritsenko So at the University of Helsinki, where we were both at at that time, so at the Aleksandri Institute for Russian East European Studies, uh, we, we found out we had quite similar interests. So we both were very interested in, in digital politics, uh, but also in promoting digital methods for studying Russia. And we said it would be good to get a little bit more attention for that uh, because uh, we noticed that this was very much spread out. So you would have internationally uh, individual researchers doing research on related topics, but they were not necessarily connected to each other. Uh, so we came up with the seminar series to try and invite speakers to talk about all these very diverse topics, just to share knowledge and share skills, and also very uh, like more methodological skills. And at some point, we thought, well, this, this actually is picking up. So people were interested. We got uh, the network was growing. Um, we found out that there was quite some demand. Uh, so we decided, well, would it, would it not be nice to then turn that into a book? So have something very concrete where you do the same thing. So where you try to combine on the one hand, how is digital digitalization changing Russia? So all of the different aspects that you would have in, let's say, the areas that is approached to Russia. So Russian economy, government, culture, arts, religion, all of those. So how is digitalization changing those? But at the same time, to combine it with chapters that are about data sources. So what kind of new digital sources do you have? How is that changing how we study Russia? And then also part about methods because they tended to be very separate. Uh, and we wanted to actually bring them all together to so then promote that people also read across those divides. And we teamed up with a third editor, Michael, uh, who's a linguist, also at the University of Helsinki, uh, to make sure that we had like all of the different backgrounds that we needed to actually do the book. Uh, so we can go all the way from humanities, since I also have part part background in humanities, uh, through all of the social sciences into linguistics, uh, into more linguist approaches uh, working with large uh, large corpora of text for example so that we were able as editors also to uh, to manage such very very diverse topics and make sure that they were all on the the level of quality that we wanted to have for the book so it really emerged out of this collaboration very naturally uh, but of course at some point you then understand how big this thing is that we started there was it was quite a lot of work but at the same time Uh, I think it's also quite a unique resource, and I'm very happy that it's out there and that it's also finding its audience.
0: Yeah, that sounds really fascinating and definitely a timely contribution. And you also wrote one chapter in that book, The Digitalization of Russian Politics and Political Participation. So to talk a little bit about that chapter, how has digitalization or technology in general changed Russian politics?
1: So what I do in the chapter is that I look at the different aspects of politics and try to understand um, what has digitalization done there. So has it changed something fundamentally? So has it changed, for example, the character of politics? Or is it just that now it's done by different means? So it's the same thing, but now, now it's digital. So, because it can be either way, right? It can be that your campaigning style, for example, is completely revamped because you now use digital tools. You now do use different kinds of targeting, or it can be that you just, you used to have a poster, now you have a website. Uh, so that was more or less the idea behind the chapter to look at the different areas and try to see to what extent has something fundamentally changed. Uh, so I look at uh, political communication. Uh, so for example, uh, how over time uh, Russian politicians started using social media. And also at some point it was governmental policy that also local representatives had to do it. So all of the governors, for example, were forced to have their online presence and to use these communication channels. Uh, so that's one one dimension, seeing the changes there. Another one is more about campaigning, uh, which of course is an area where you also, which is interesting because it also affects the actual electoral outcomes. So if you now adopt new campaigning strategies that are digital, and that are very useful, that uh, turn out to be effective, then that at that point uh, could still uh, affect electoral outcomes. So that's another one. And then voting, of course, so the actual systems used. So um, for example, recently uh, they've been um, they've been using electronic voting, and also more recently even online voting. Uh, which, of course, is also, uh, well, there's quite some risk of fraud. <laughs> we could can, we can talk more about that. Uh, and then finally, of course, also uh, things like civic engagement. Uh, so how does it uh, also affect more local local level government? You also had some initiatives like participatory budgeting so that on a very local level, uh, the citizens of particular neighborhoods, for example, could co-decide on how a uh, part of the local budget was spent. So I go through all of those different domains uh, and trying to chart over time what has happened. And if you read it back now, it's actually quite interesting to see just uh, because there's this arch where initially there is very little. Uh, So, of course, digitalization is seen as an opportunity, uh, opportunity for uh, economic growth, first and foremost. But at some point under Medvedev, there is an actual very strong open government movement. So the idea that uh, all ministries should publish all of their decisions. Uh, even just last week, I was wa- uh, watching a discussion in a, like the local parliament of, the Mos- of Moscow, so Moscow City Duma, about their uh, video surveillance systems. So I was watching it on YouTube. And this is a result of these open government policies from the 2010s. So the fact that these kind of things need to be open, that they need to be accessible, Uh, Which is, of course, now very strange because we now are in the opposite arch where everything is closing down again. Uh, So over the the past 20 years or so, you really see uh, on the one hand that everything is modernizing. Uh, There has been an actual improvement in terms of governmental uh, services to citizens using all kinds of digital platforms. But at the same time, we're now on on the opposite arch where everything is uh, restricting again where we are moving in the opposite direction so where digital tools are used mostly to repress to control and much less to offer services to citizens
0: and i understand that you also studied internet policy and also algorithmic governance in the russian context such as in your articles of the banning of the messaging app telegram and also the Russian state's law on regulating news aggregators, those ones powered by algorithms. So what is so special about the Russian approach to algorithmic governance or the control of these platforms?
1: I think the the most different has been uh, two things. So first of all, if you, um, so when we think about authoritarian states, then usually we think of China um, and China has developed this internet in isolation, more or less from the global internet they also have a very large market. So that means that there are domestic companies, domestic platforms, everything can be done in-house, so to say. Uh, this, of course, also affords quite an extensive uh, level of control. In, in Russia, the opposite is the case. So the Russian Internet develops fully integrated with the global Internet. So, for example, uh, you have these very large domestic uh, companies such as Yandex, which you can think of as uh, the Russian Google, more or less. Uh, they even launched their search engine before Google did. Uh, so that's how far back it goes. Uh, and they have all of these uh, different uh, conglomerates of media services. Um, and at the same time, so contrary to China, uh, international companies were active there. So it was a mixed market where on the one hand you had very well developed domestic internet sector, very well developed platforms, many of them also more popular than the international ones. So, for example, when you think about social media, then the domestic one, uh, VK, which used to be known as of it was more popular than, for example, Facebook. Uh, So that made it very interesting that it's this very mixed market of, on the one hand, very strong national competitors. uh, At the same time, foreign competitors were still in the same market. Uh, And it also developed quite freely up until a certain point. So up until, like, we usually take 2012, 2013 as the turning point when there were very large-scale protests in Moscow as well as other cities against electoral fraud in the parliamentary elections. And these are very, very large protests, the largest ones up, uh, that had been there since the disintegration of the of the Soviet Union. And at that moment, it was understood that social media played quite an important role, so it's a facilitatory role, in uh, organizing those protests. Uh, so to, to build new collectives, to have people know that there is a protest, to call on others schools to join the protests, and so on. Uh, so this really, um, it alarmed the Russian government where they thought we now have to switch gears. So we will no longer, as they had done before, they tried to influence online discourses. So for example, by paying bloggers, uh, also to some, to some extent using bots. We've seen uh, some early uh, evidence of that as well. Uh, so they used to be quite unique in that sense that they were more on that end. So not trying to restrict, not trying to block websites, but just trying to influence those online discourses. Uh, but this moment uh, in time, it changed it. So now it was seen as a fundamental threat. It's also argued that uh, the internet, internet is a US invention and therefore uh, protests can never be natural. They're always instilled by this outside power. So it's always foreign agents, always foreign interference. And they use social media to do it. Uh, so this was the turning point where the internet policy really changed. Uh, so that's also when uh, legislation was changed to make it possible to block websites, for example. And since then, that has expanded. So they uh, they shifted case first, blocking some websites. For example, uh, also the website of uh, oppositionist Gary uh, Kasparov, uh, the famous chess player, for example, one of his, uh, his website was also blocked around that time. Uh, but over time, of course, uh, how people consume, information, how they consume news, this also shifted. So not just websites, but more and more through these aggregators. So for example, that people would go to this news aggregator, Yandex News, Yandex Novosti, uh, and to see there, what is the main news? What are the main headlines? And this would still uh, aggregate all of the news sources. So it would have all different kinds of news, including also, uh, which was very uncomfortable for the Russian government, uh, foreign news in Russian. So, for example, during uh, Russia's war against Georgia, two thousand eight, Yandex News would also show Georgian news in Russian. Uh, same for uh, annexation of Crimea and the start of the war uh, against Ukraine, two thousand fourteen. Yandex News would include Ukrainian sources in Russian, and this really uh, started a big, big struggle between the government and uh, between Yandex uh, as well as some other news aggregators. Because they wanted to see, how does this work? This cannot be. You cannot, uh, you cannot uh, promote the sources of the enemy. Uh, and this, in the end, resulted into, into legislation to actually make sure that this can never happen again. Uh, so connecting it to uh, the licensing. So now they could only show uh, media that actually has a license in Russia. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really that the, the regulatory efforts, they follow in a way the way that people consume information. Uh, So it's very reactive in a way. So when they see that the problem, so-called problem is emerging, uh, then they have to respond. And you see this happening all of the time.
0: Mm. And I see a lot of similarity to the Chinese approach as well, as I'm studying news aggregator in China. Do you see these two uh, regions somehow comparable in terms of uh, Internet governance?
1: I think they are comparable in the sense that the like the general approach uh, what they seek to achieve that of course has many similarities uh, so both of them want to strengthen their regimes, both of them recognize the importance of information uh, but still uh, up until two years ago or so um, I think for, you know, for russia it uh, it has been pushing towards what they call like digital sovereignty, so trying to become independent have their own domestic uh, like software and hardware and not be dependent on foreign suppliers, but also pushing out these foreign competitors, uh, pushing out these nasty foreign social media companies that they cannot force to censor. Uh, but this has been a very long and difficult process because the Russian internet developed in a way that was so interwoven with the global internet that actually this turned out to not be really possible. Uh, at the same time, um, what we also long believed was that uh, they didn't want to annoy the Russian consumer too much. Uh, if you block a website, and this really disrupts things, if you block a platform even more so. And this, uh, we think, has long been uh, like an in- impediment. As that as long as a platform did not cause that much political problems, as long as they could solve it in other means, then they would leave it be. Uh, so also within what we call digital authoritarianism, so studies of uh, of how authoritarian states use digital technologies, uh, this is also understood as one mechanism which, through which you can actually monitor public debate. So it allows you to know what is going on. And it also allows citizens to vent. So to actually vent their frustrations. Uh, and therefore, you, the theory is that this could then be used to prevent larger scale unrest from from actually occurring. Uh, so that if you allow some degree of freedom of speech, if you allow some degree of public debate, if you manage it in ways that are not felt as censorship by citizens, then this might actually be beneficial for regime stability. Uh, So that was long been the idea. But of course now everything is different. Uh, So since two years or so, uh, the Russian regime has become very openly authoritarian. There's no doubt about what is going on. Uh, So this uh, the hardening really has coincided with uh, with the, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Uh, Then, of course, uh, he was being treated in Germany and then returned to Russia, after which he was arrested. And there were, again, very, very large scale protests. Uh, And this is really the moment when everything hardened even more, uh, where there is no more discussion. And of course, especially now with uh, Russia's war against Ukraine, uh, we have moved on to even more severe territory where even very popular international platforms are now banned. So for example, Instagram was very, very popular in Russia and also very much ingrained in everyone's life. Uh, so your uh, your local hairdresser would have an Instagram and use it to, to talk to your clients, but also your local governor would also have their Instagram account. Uh, so it is very much ingrained in just everyday practices as well as just day-to-day economic transactions as well. And in this case, what they did was that they actually gave uh, what I call an eviction notice. So they said two days in advance, Instagram will be blocked. Please pre- prepare. Please make sure to uh, transfer your users to whatever platform you like. But we, we suggested you move it to these ones, which was uh, in a way a very interesting moment where you see that this massive, massive million audience suddenly had to move um, and it it looks like this did not really cause as much stress as you might have anticipated. Uh, But of course, we are now speaking about a situation of war uh, where there's very open repression, uh, where there is a very high level of censorship. Uh, So of course, this also really dampens the the potential for any protest activities. Also, because all of the, the societal infrastructures for protests have also been disbanded over the past few years. Uh, so you do see that what they might have feared before, so that uh, blocking an international platform leads to resistance, that did not really appear to materialize on this case.
0: Mm. Just out of curiosity, what kind of uh, apps did they suggest when they asked people to move away from Instagram? Uh,
1: so so most of all, they, uh, they said that you have to go to VK, so to go to VKontakte. And to some extent, also Telegram, because Telegram has been uh, very large in in Russia, even though they, they tried to they tried to ban it for two years between two thousand eighteen and two thousand twenty, uh, which was unsuccessful. Uh, but then uh, it was unbanned again, which is still a very mysterious case. Uh, but it, that is also very big. So if you look at the actual numbers, so uh, audience growth of around that time, you do see some audiences mostly moving to those two platforms. And of course, some also to this other Russian platform called uh, Adna Klasniki, uh, which is a bit smaller and different kinds of audience. Uh, but those are the most, uh, most prominent ones. Yeah.
0: But I thought they would ask people to move to some platforms where the Russian government has more control of. doesn't seem necessarily the case. Uh, for VK,
1: yes. So VK is very much state-controlled. Uh, so that is is a Russian Russian platform that was uh, originally uh, founded by the uh, Durov uh, brothers, uh, who also afterwards founded Telegram. And uh, well, the, the 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 current consensus is that they were forced out uh, in two thousand fourteen uh, because they didn't want did not want to share user information uh, with the Russian security services. Um, at the same time, of course, we do not know the details of this. We do not know how exactly this happened. Uh, but since then, uh, it, it has been part of this uh, larger group called the uh, Milru Group, which was uh, at that time owned by a very famous oligarch called Utsmanov. Uh, so this is very, very close to the, to the Kremlin. Uh, so mm. this uh, VK has been very, very much stayed in line for a very long time. Mm. Uh, we also know that uh, from from court cases, for example, uh, that a lot of prosecutions are done on the basis of uh, people's activities on VK. Uh, so this is a very much a very state-loyal uh, mm-hmm. platform, uh, and I would say now even more so, since this, uh, this entire company is now run by the son of Kiryenko, who is basically part of the very close-knit circle around Putin himself uh so yeah, when we speak about vk then this is definitely very state uh, state controlled uh for telegram it is all a bit more murky uh so as i said it's also um it was started by the Tudov brothers uh, they had a very long history so uh, ostensibly this was done to prevent state uh, state surveillance uh so to protect your communications from state surveillance uh, but we also know that, of course, uh, Telegram has been popular with all kinds of audiences, So also very extremists. Uh, uh, around 2015, 2016, you had uh, ISIS propaganda, uh, which also was very prominent uh, on Telegram or Telegram was much used in those circles. Um, so they have a very long, intense history with all kinds of governments. Where this idea of all information should be free, of course, also brings in all of the the dark sides of uh, of online communications. And for Russia, they blocked it for two years, uh, also because they said it is being used by terrorist organizations to to organize uh, to organize attacks. Uh, since Russia has has quite some history with terrorist attacks, uh, at the same time. We do have some mixed feelings about the ban uh, because at the time it was also really emerging as an alternative platform for news so this was the, the platform that was being used to by the opposition it was being used by activists it was being used by news organizations uh, it was used as uh, like where to spread the gossip about what is actually happening in the kremlin um, so it was becoming a very very influential news source which of course uh, means that we also have to view it as at least being a double decision, that it might have served two ends at the same time. Uh, But the fact that now it is uh, still allowed, it is uh, even actively used, uh, it also means that we have to be aware how the Russian government itself is also using it for promotional means. So they use this as a means to share propaganda with see very influential military channels on Telegram at the moment, for example. And we know that quite many of them have at least been co-opted, if not created, uh, by, by the Russian state and its affiliates. Uh, so this means that we, for Telegram, we always have to view it as this very, uh, very murky kind of uh, communicator that on the one hand uh, really espouses these ideas about almost uh, libertarian ideas about information freedom uh, at, and being anti-state repression and so on. But at the same time we also know that they give uh, they give way to all of this uh, more uh, state propaganda uh, infiltration of channels and so on uh, so um, I'm always quite critical of telegram because <laughs> yeah, yeah it's really difficult to to pinpoint what is going on they also communicate very little they're very closed um, so it's very difficult to assess really what, what they what they do and what their intentions are
0: yeah, and sometimes when I look at Russia and I cannot help but comparing it to the Chinese context and how the Chinese government is controlling its uh, digital space, right? So their approach is more like the Chinese approach is more like let's build a great firewall and then the Chinese citizens don't have access to any of those uh, apps or websites such as Google, Facebook, Instagram. And I've always been curious about how the Russian state managed to, through the process of digitalization, still being integrated to the international internet development. Why they made that choice in the beginning? Why didn't they choose to shut off? And how did they manage to do this? But as you already mentioned, it seems like already taken the turn. So what is going on there? Um, I
1: think it fundamentally has been a very different decision at the beginning. Uh, so perhaps also uh, at the level of the president, at least, uh, not fully really realizing what it actually is. So one of the the things that you might you might not realize is that Putin, has, as as it is being alleged, and uh, never actually uses the internet. So he only gets print printouts of stuff. Uh, so this, this of course may have also influenced initially, at least, uh, the way that he uh, he perceived it. Uh, Even though uh, in public statements, he's been very uh, suspicious of it because of its uh, American ties. At the same time, Medvedev at that time was seen as this revolutionizer. So he also went to the the headquarters of Twitter to make his Twitter account. He's been very active in all kinds of social media. So really being seen as uh, the president that will take Russia into this new age. Uh, so this also brought then, so this really period from 2008 to 2012, the idea that, well, maybe Russia is turning in a different direction, maybe it is opening up, uh, maybe it, it, it is modernizing in this way, um, even though on, under the surface, of course, many of the same structures were not actually changing. So it has been really, really about uh, economic growth, the opportunities for economic growth and development. Uh, but also, for uh, if you think about the scale of Russia, then, of course, digitalization is also excellent for education. So when you have these far remote regions, uh, improving health services. Well, this is where digital uh, can really help you improving education. Same thing. Uh, so you should really see it as uh, partly being quite pragmatic uh, that it can really help improve the way that the state runs. At the same time it was also thought to improve things like uh, actually collecting your taxes uh, because uh, corruption, not paying taxes, this has been a problem in Russia for a very long time. We know this goes all the way to the top uh, but of course the top doesn't mind as much about their own corruption and about their own not paying taxes, but they do mind about the lower levels. So they want all businesses to at least pay their taxes. And this is also where digital uh, platforms have really helped. So their own uh, tools and services that they've built to improve, for example, how the tax office works. Um, So it it's really been uh, self-interested. But still, the idea usually was that knowledge exchange, integration, uh, this is beneficial. So many people working in those areas, uh, this was their orientation. And because the, the internet sector itself and the way that the internet worked and the uh, the, the spaces for communication, uh, it's to a certain extent, the Russian platforms, especially when we think about the information space, they were really popular. Uh, so that also maybe have has lessened uh, the, the felt need to intervene. Uh, so when you think, for example, about search engines, that Russia always had multiple search engines available at the same time it still does uh, so you could use either the Yandex search engine or you could use the Google search engine. But to work with Russian language and Russian ser- searches, the Russian one actually is much better because it has been tailored to that because Russian is fundamentally different just in terms of the the actual script that it uses, but also the grammar. Uh, So you would actually have better results. So it's a better product. So the domestic product for a very long time was better. And this then of course keeps users on that one. Uh, And it's uh, only if you really want to, then you would use the other one perhaps. Yeah, Even though if we now do research, we find massive differences between if you would use the Google search engine or if you would use the the Yandex search engine, because the Yandex one, uh, it has followed Russian legislation much more than the, uh, the international one. Uh, so, so it's really multi- multi-dimensional, multifaceted how it has developed over time where you see these multiple tendencies, some of them pulling towards more openness, pulling towards uh, making the most of, this glo- of globalization, making the most of, uh, of like, these improvements. Uh, but at the same time, you have this opposite tendency coming from the political side about uh, gaining and maintaining control, uh, limiting opposition, uh, trying to keep things as small as possible. So the logic for a long time appears to have been that as long as things are small enough, so as long as you do not reach that big of an audience, then it can exist. If you become too popular, if you become too big, then then we need to do something about it. You've seen this also with Navalny. Uh, that when it was still small enough, it was fine. When they were building an entire network of political local headquarters, and they turned out to be quite successful in pushing change in in elections, then of course it becomes a very different matter and we need to do something about it. And that's what we've seen happening.
0: And you've touched upon this uh, briefly, but uh, something we cannot not talk about would be what happened in February this year when there is escalation of the Russian-Ukraine war. And since then, what has changed in Russian studies or what has changed uh, for you, for your research?
1: So many things have happened since, uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine this year. Um, of course, first of all, uh, you have to do the very practical things uh, where all collaborations between especially European uh, institutions or European universities and other public uh, institutions and Russian institutions can no longer happen. So if you would have a joint research project, for example, all of those have to be canceled. Uh, you cannot transfer money to anyone in, in Russia. So if you would work uh, normally work with, for example, a local researcher to do certain tasks, uh, then those things can no longer be done. At the same time, you also cannot go there. Uh, so you cannot actually do field work as you might've done in the past. So for example, in the past, I've also done interviews in Moscow. Uh, you would not be able to do that now. Uh, same holds, of course, for people who do archival research. So if you have archives that are only available uh, in Russian archives, uh, then that, of course, also is, uh, is much more difficult now. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it just affects all different kinds of disciplines. Uh, so for me right now, it is still quite okay because I work a lot also with policies. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, Russia has made those digitally available. So I can still consult all the laws. I can still consult how, for example, the Russian parliament debates certain legislation. Uh, but at the same time, that might also change so it might be that they actually close down that access. Uh, so it's quite risky in that sense as well. Uh, but it affects, of course, more people who actually work with with Russians on the ground, so to say. So if you would do fieldwork, if you are an anthropologist, for example, that is much more difficult. Also, the ethical issues involved there. But also if you would do surveys. So a lot of the political science research relies on surveys. And this used to be quite good, Um they used to be a joke as well that like Russia is the most accessible authoritarian country. Uh, so it's the best one. If you want to study something, you can study Russia. Uh, because you could still pay for uh, one of the local pollsters that was independent, uh, Levada, uh, to conduct these surveys, and they would actually be quite good. But of course, now it's very different. First of all, you, you can no longer pay Levada. So you cannot pay them. Even though in Russia, they're also seen as a foreign agent. Uh, so you have this very double situation where they cannot exist in Russia, but we also cannot pay them from the outside. But at the same time, you also have to question how reliable these surveys still are, since we now have such a high level of censorship, so much uh, repression, where you can be prosecuted for expressing your opinion, and uh, as well as basically stating anything that is true about the war, this can get you prosecuted. Uh, You cannot speak about the actual activities of the Russian army. You cannot speak about the atrocities that they are committing. Uh, This is all outlawed. Uh, You can also, people are encouraged to also report on each other uh, when they make these kinds of statements. So this, of course, means that when you think about a survey where you ask people about their opinions, then you cannot expect them to answer openly. Uh, You have to be really, really careful in interpreting those kinds of results, And and you might also ask to what extent can you still do this? Uh, Are you also putting these persons at risk? So for example, if we would want to know uh, what is the level of support for Russia's war against Ukraine? This of course is very sensitive. Uh, So how will people respond? And some researchers are still trying to push forward. Uh, So trying to uh, see well, if we do it differently. So for example, if you do not ask people directly but you do it indirectly, or you allow them to choose multiple options, so that they do not have to declare that that openly. Uh, that you can then still get some meaningful results. Uh, but at the same time, this is a, this is really a big blow to how many people have studied Russia for a long time. Uh, so it's both on the the more collaboration level, uh, so no longer being able to collaborate with Russian scholars, uh, but also in how you actually access data how you have to interpret the things that you find, uh, the things have become much more complicated. But if I just think about the handbook that we, that we edited, uh, if you look through the authors, uh, you'll see that we actually made an effort to make sure that we included as many Russian scholars as possible. Uh, so the, the scholars that we know that do like good academic work. So we really made an issue of trying to include them. At the same time now, that would be very much more difficult uh, so, uh, first of all, actually uh, being associated with me could put them at risk, for example, because they are now, then collaborating with Western scholars. Uh, moreover, of course, I'm a Western scholar who researches very nasty things, right? Uh, I'm a very critical scholar in many ways. Uh, so in my engagement with Russian scholars who are still in Russia is that I'm very hesitant now because I know that I can put them at risk. So we would no longer be able to pull something off like this. He would no longer be able to actually do it uh, because she cannot uh, work with Russian scholars in the same way. Which, of course, is a, is is very sad. Uh, which is a, and also moving forward, uh, it, is, it is very sad that we can no longer have these kinds of collaborations. Both because institutionally we are not allowed to. So of course, informally you can have contact, but ne- nothing that is formal. Uh, but at the same time, of course, that also means all kinds of personal relationships uh, that people have built over time that those are also under a lot of stress. Uh, so it's a uh, quite a big blow for for Russian studies uh, mm-hmm. we have to see how how to move forward uh, at the same time, of course people find find solutions, but it's, uh, <laughs> but what I worry most about so it is actually perhaps uh, a connected issue is that um, for research, we often also use journalistic coverage. Uh, so to just like, know what is going on. So for example, I do a lot of research on the, the Russian IT sector. And just to, to stay abreast of what is happening, I, I rely on Russian journalism quite a lot. Uh, because especially for, for tech policy and so on, and the developments in, the, in Russian business, this used to be quite good. So you can follow that and see what is going on, find some trends and identify things that you want to then research so to then delve deeper into. But because Russian journalism, uh, especially independent journalism, has come under so much stress, so all independent journalists' uh, media have been blocked. Pretty much all independent Russian journalists are abroad working in exile. Uh, This now means, of course, that uh, this also comes under pressure. It's very difficult for them to still do their work to still report on Russia, to work with local sources, uh, to perhaps try and pay a local journalist who's still active in Russia. So this, of course, also on the longer term is a limitation for us as well, that we also lose this additional uh, way of accessing things that are happening on the ground.
0: I was actually going to ask you another question about the main challenges that the Russian uh, studies scholars have been facing, but you've already named so many in terms of um, methodology or even access to data, to political risks, and even the empirical materials that we can collect. And you mentioned you know, looking for a way out or solutions. Is there any silver lining on all of this, like what can we do and maybe what are the aspects that we can pull or we should put our scholarly attention to especially now in these kind of circumstances
1: um well what i think is uh, it's of course challenging in many ways at the moment because it is uh, so so in my case i've been uh, basically following this decline of russia and especially in the domains that i focus on so press freedom internet freedom There's this is really a brilliant really story of decline Uh, So just building repression, uh, which on the one hand, I think uh, also makes it very important to study. Uh, At the same time, of course, it does not not inspire you with enthusiasm necessarily, right? Uh, And especially when it becomes more and more hard. Uh, So you can imagine that uh, moving forward, this also becomes a less attractive field to actually work in. So if you just think about uh, students now who might choose to learn Russian, but can never go to Russia. That might also be an impediment that might actually uh, mean that less students now learn Russian. And if less students learn Russian, then they also cannot work with Russian sources, for example, which I think is for many fields very essential, that you're able to access materials uh, in their original language. Uh, But these, of course, are longer term things, but it might change the the field as a whole. Uh, So, of course, there's a lot of political interest. Uh, There's a lot of uh, interest in uh, trying to make predictions uh, where it might go. Uh, at the same time, this really pushes towards the the hard the heart sides of uh, social science, uh, so really international relations, security, and so on. But at the same time, we also know that uh, it's very un- important to understand like the actual societal, uh, how society is, is bound together, how it works, how it operates, how culture works. Uh, we see that all throughout uh, the, the past months, We've seen how important it is, uh, the way that the state communicates, uh, how it tries to legitimize what it's doing, how it's trying to um, intimidate its citizens, how it's trying to justify the extent of the repression it does. Uh, and this is very much in the realm of what we would say is humanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, I think moving forward, this, uh, this might create some, uh, some issues. Uh, would you still be interested in actually studying the state that is doing these kinds of things? Uh, I mm-hmm. Personally, I find it quite difficult sometimes. Uh, you do not. Uh, I've studied quite a lot of Russian propaganda also for my PhD, uh, and it's very difficult to actually study that. If you now, uh, there has been uh, a colleague at the University of Helsinki, uh, Margarita Zavatska. Uh She, together with uh, several PhDs, they studied uh, Russian propaganda around the elections, uh, and they actually uh, they even wrote a blog reflecting on the impact that it had. Uh, because it is very very uh, hard to actually watch that amount of propaganda so on the one hand there's a very clear research need we need to know what is going on at the same time it's actually very difficult to do uh, for you as a researcher especially a younger researcher uh, to actually study these kinds of materials Uh, because you see such ridiculous claims it's uh, it's really really hard to do Uh, so silver lining you were asking for a silver lining (laughs) I'm getting very far, far away from silver linings. Um, I, I don't really know what the silver lining is. I think perhaps the silver lining is that um, there has been a, a very strong field of Russian studies. Uh, this is also uh, quite a close community. Uh, so people know each other, people uh, work together. There are very impressive collectives who have been working together for quite some time. Um, so I think that, that uh, is a good uh, provides a good basis uh, to try and maintain that we have a high level of knowledge, which I think is really essential moving forward. Uh, if we want to be able to respond to what Russia is doing, if we want to be able to formulate policies uh, that will help us respond, then you do need this very fine-grained understanding of how Russia works, uh, how society reacts, uh, why it does not react sometimes. Um, and I think that this uh, this community is able to to provide that. Uh, so I'm hoping that because it is such a, a very well built network in a way uh, that it is able to actually respond uh, and to provide that knowledge. Uh, at the same time, we do see a shift in the field, which I think is very positive. To say that well, it has been quite silly that you have these, for example, as I mentioned, uh, Alexandri, Russian and East European studies. It's like, why is Russia mentioned? uh just really approaching an entire region by focusing on Russia alone. And then maybe you have, if you have, were teaching a seminar that you would have one session on the Baltic States, right? So you would have 10 about Russia and then one about the Baltic States. So even not mentioning them in the, in independently. And that that is actually quite silly. Uh, and that we need to move away from that, that we need to make sure that we provide uh, all these independent states with sufficient attention, that we actually study them independently. Uh, and to try and not view them from the Russian perspective, because it has colored uh, much uh, much of the field. And I think that that is a very useful discussion that is ongoing now, that I hope also will actually uh, lead to changes. So both in education as well as in research, that uh, it used to be the case that, for example, if you were in uh, political science, that they would say, well... Perhaps not do this case study on Georgia because Georgia is too small. you will never get a job if you write your dissertation about Georgia or Azerbaijan. Uh, you can much better write it about Russia. Uh, I hope that that will change now that actually these other uh, other states that are very very worthy of independent study that have very different ways in which societies organize very different challenges that they struggle with, but also very different achievements. Uh, I think we see this now with how resilient Ukraine has turned out to be how we see that the digital policies that they have done over the past years, how an important role they have played in being so resilient. Um, That really means that we have to study them more seriously independently. And I hope that that discussion that is now ongoing, that that will actually result in a a more diverse field, which I think is very useful. So hopefully that's the silver lining that I think uh, might (laughs) might appear, Uh, but at the same time, uh, the current situation is very di- very difficult because we have uh, we have an ongoing war which uh, is really devastating both for Ukrainian citizens for Ukrainian academics uh, who have to keep uh, keep working and try to keep working and then on the opposite side uh, you have russian state collapse near as well as many people who have left the country uh, trying to now find different uh, different uh, different places to to stay, uh, try to find their way in exile. Uh, so there are many, many challenges uh, on different levels. So the only thing that we can hope for is to, uh, to have a, a positive, positive peace in the end, uh, but that unfortunately is not yet on the horizon. Uh, because we, we see around the war that there has been so much disinformation, especially of course the Russian side is really uh, very aggressive uh, in this disinformation efforts. Uh, But what I've been very impressed in is uh, like the building of these international networks to counter this, uh, so that we've learned to to recognize and to respond, and that you see these international collectives forming, uh, trying to both uh, debunk disinformation, but also to really push for justice. Uh, And I've been very impressed in how multiple communities, for example, this. Open source community, OSINT community, who has been very active in, in fact-checking all kinds of claims and evidence, and then you have a very strong human rights community, uh, which uh, was very uh, deservedly won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, they have been working really hard in documenting all of the uh, all of the atrocities that the Russian army has committed to make sure that at some point justice can be done. Um, and I'm been very impressed in the the international. Uh, networking and response. Uh, so this is a lot. This takes a lot of effort, um, but I do think that those kinds of efforts they make me very positive. Uh, that uh, some justice will be done in the end, uh, which I hope will will come to be.
0: And uh, before I let you go, can you tell us a little bit what have you been working on right now?
1: So right now, as a as a fellow at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies, um, I'm working on. Uh, digital sovereignty or digital dependency actually of authoritarian states Uh, since we've uh, many authoritarian states especially China but also Russia for quite some years they've been very vocal about striving towards digital sovereignty so to become independent uh, to have uh, all of their hardware and software domestically produced to not be dependent on any foreign supplier uh, but through all of my research of Russia, uh, I always saw this big gap between, on the one hand, all of their policies and the things that they were claiming. So for example, claiming that the Russian internet will become fully independent and we we can just uh, detach it and then it will keep on operating. And on the opposite hand, just looking at how much everything was still integrated, how dependent they were still on foreign suppliers of all kinds of things. Uh, so I saw this massive gap and I also thought, well, that's actually very, it makes them very vulnerable makes it very vulnerable in terms of uh, how they try to do their repression. So, for example, it's very difficult to to force foreign social media platforms to commit censorship. That can be very difficult, Uh, but also on other other types of levels. So, for example, that they are very highly dependent on Android operating systems for their mobile phones. They don't really have a very uh, suitable domestic alternative. Same issue with uh, like higher quality processors uh, on all of those levels, I, I thought, well, that doesn't really look like you're not in, not dependent. And actually now that I was working on this, I so trying to theorize what are the, the vulnerabilities that actually come from those uh, dependencies. Because the global uh, the, the globe is so interdependent uh, when it comes to digital infrastructures. What does that mean for how uh, states try to control the sphere? Of course, now the war happened. Uh, and as a response, uh, there have been sanctions have been imposed, especially also tech sanctions, but also wider sanctions that affect all elements of digital infrastructure. And especially also we've seen the uh, departure from the Russian market of, of many Western IT companies, and this is really wreaking havoc uh, all across the Russian internet sector. So on the one hand, they have blocked foreign platforms. So you would say, well, that actually strengthens their capacity, for example, to censor information. At the same time, all of their ambitions, uh, for example, in becoming very advanced in AI or just running these kinds of very extensive surveillance systems, you need very you need servers for that. Uh, where do those servers come from? Well, apparently not from Russia, because they're deemed not good enough by Russian state authorities, right? Uh, so you see all of these tensions emerging. Uh, so that is what, I, what I'm working on mostly now. Uh, so how, what uh, does this global digital interdependence, what does that actually mean for authoritarian states?
0: Yeah, um, I wish you the best of luck with your research and um, despite all the challenges we've talked about and I personally also have to say thank you because I do take a lot of inspirations from uh, your work and your colleagues work so yeah thank you very much for the great work you've been doing and also thank you very much for the conversation today. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, you can also connect with Malia and me on Twitter and Mastodon. The links will be shared in the show notes. Thank you for listening to New Books Network podcast. See you next time.